All right, well, listen, last week we began our church launch series entitled First Things First, and we started to look at what are the reasons of of why we should keep first things first, and we looked at the first reason, namely that the reason why we should keep first things first, number one, is because it's when we do that we're able to enjoy grace and detect legalism. Well, today we're looking at the second reason, the next thing really that I think Paul wants to address us with. So if you'd like to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And just like last week, I want us to read this and for you to receive this as if indeed you were Timothy. Read this passage and listen to this passage as if God was addressing you himself because he is. Read this passage as if it was a letter written to you because in so many ways, it was. So let's read 2 Timothy 1 from verse 3. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So, Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Lord, today I want to guard the good deposit entrusted to me. Lord, you know my desire to serve these folks. I fully believe and I'm fully convinced that the gospel changes lives. And so, Lord, would you give me grace? And Lord, would it primarily be your words they hear, your voice they hear, and not mine? Lord, do what I cannot do and change hearts. Take feeble men's words and bring to life people by your amazing grace. Help me, Lord. Amen. Letters. We all, at some times in our lives, write letters, don't we? Whether it be email, or whether it be getting a pen out on a piece of paper, we all have to communicate with people at different times in our lives. And so whether it be to invite someone to a social get-together, because they're a friend and we want them there, 
whether it be to write to someone, to let a loved one know how we feel about them, and we just find it easier to pen it rather than just talk, or whether it be an update to others on how we're doing and how we're getting on and where they can be praying for us. There's so many reasons why we write letters, but we all write letters at some point in our lives. But imagine, if you will, you have to write a letter which you know is going to be your final letter. Imagine, if you will, you are dying. You know that you have got cancer or some type of disease, and you know you are literally only facing days left. And you've got to write to your loved ones what will no doubt be your final letter. What are you going to say? What would you write to those you love? You know, I was thinking about it this week, and thinking, what would, what would I write? We have a situation at home where Emma's auntie is, is dying of cancer and they're basically saying they don't even know if she'll make the weekend out and you feel so far away. But imagine if you were writing to her to let her know how you feel about her and what is taking place. You know, I submit to you the things that we'd be writing about are really twofold. We would be writing about the way we feel about that person because we'd want them to know that we love them. And we'd also be reminding them, I think, of of that which is most important to us. So much of life we think is in color, but really it's in black and white. There's only really a few things that are really important. And when you're faced with that final little thought, you would be tempted to just about write about what's really important and not the trivial. Well, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here to Timothy. This is his final letter Paul knows that very soon he is going to have his life taken from him. He knows that very soon he is going to be executed for his faith. But he wants to take the time before he is killed to write to Timothy, his child in the faith, his son in the faith. And he does exactly what I said. He writes to him to let him know how he feels about him, how he feels about this boy that he has invested in so heavily throughout his life. And he writes to him to remind him, Timothy, this is what is most important. You see, within this whole passage, but particularly in chapter 1, we find Paul pulling Timothy to one side to remind Timothy that, Timothy, there is something of great importance. There is something of first importance. There is something in your life which you need to keep hold of above everything else. There is something that is central around which everything else derives and everything else flows from. That thing, of course, according to Paul, is indeed the gospel. He said to the Corinthians that I've known nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. He reminded them that it was indeed first things first among the Corinthians. To the Galatians, he said, I will boast in nothing else except Christ and him crucified. To the Ephesians, a church which Paul planted, a church which Paul has introduced to the glorious gospel of grace. He writes to them and spends three chapters reminding them of the gospel before he makes any applications. And now to Timothy, he says, Timothy, the gospel is the main thing. So Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. Timothy, God the good deposit, Timothy. Keep it and hold it fast and treasure it, Timothy. Never move on from the gospel. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And you know, for us today, as we gather around this book, I want you to realize this isn't just a letter to Timothy. It's a letter to you. 
It is God speaking to you. This has been framed for us in the holiness of God, in his holy word. Not just to remind us, that, oh, once upon a time Paul mentioned this to Timothy. No, it is God speaking to us today to remind us that which is of first importance. That which is really the main thing. And so how wonderful for us as we launch a church and plant a church that we get to gather around first things first before we even do anything else. You know, last week I therefore spent time to really talk about and discuss the first reason why it's so important that we keep the gospel central. And we look together at the first reason, namely that it's, it's as we keep the gospel central that we're able to enjoy grace and to detect legalism. We're able to flee from works and we're able to enjoy instead the grace of God, knowing that Jesus has paid it all and we really don't have to earn our way to salvation. Well, this week I want to go into reason two. The second reason why we must keep first things first is this. It's because when we keep the gospel central, it is then that the gospel actually functions in our hearts and minds and changes lives. You see, the gospel, my friends, changes lives. It was always meant to function. It was meant to operate in our lives. And so today what I want to do is talk about what is a biblical paradigm for the functional centrality of the gospel. A biblical paradigm for the functional centrality of the gospel. You see, the gospel changes lives. Where it functions, believe me, it changes lives. Relationships are changed. I've seen marriages completely transformed by the effect of the gospel. I've seen parenting completely changed and altered in its grace and understanding by the gospel. I've seen friendships revolutionized as the gospel begins to function in those situations. The gospel changes our thinking, changes our fears and our doubts and our values, and it changes our hearts as the Bible speaks, as the gospel speaks to our very souls as to who we really are and what we're about. The gospel changes our conduct. It influences us and motivates us and empowers us for serious change in our lives. The gospel was never meant to be moved on from. And yet the truth is, I think, in Christianity... It's so easy to move on from the gospel as if, well, that's just for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to hear the gospel. And then once you get saved, you start to mature, which means you move away from the gospel and you start to apply lots of things in your life. That is not the way the Bible teaches it. That is not the way the gospel was meant to function. We were never meant to move on from the gospel. We were just meant to stay there and allow its paradigm of grace to then wash over us day after day after day. See, David Pryor says we must never move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. I believe he's right. We were never meant to move on from the cross into something more mature. We were meant to stay near the cross for the rest of our lives and only ever grow in our understanding of the cross, which, believe me, when you understand the paradigm correctly, changes everything. It changes your whole lives. And so I want to talk today about the biblical paradigm for the functional centrality of the gospel. And to do that, I need to take you momentarily, 10,500 miles, to Spalding in Lincolnshire in England, which is where I grew up. It's a tiny little place. So even when you're in England, you say, oh, I'm from Spalding. And they go, where? And you say, well, Spalding in Lincolnshire. And they say, where's that? And you think, now it's awkward. But it's a tiny little place. It's one of those places. It had about 10,000 people in growing up. You know, it was the type of place that it had a little press. It had a free press that you'd, you'd all get given. And headline would be, you know, woman has plant pots stolen from garden. You know, that would be like front page. And you think, oh my gosh, isn't that just amazing? I'm grieved. Or, you know, small child 
chokes on penny in American burger bar, and there would be the penny with the mum holding it. And you think, is that it? Is that all we get in spoiling? It was so lame. I remember when McDonald's came on the year I left. I'm 18 years old. McDonald's finally arrives, and that was like the whole paper. I mean, the whole paper was just, wow, Big Mac's on us. It was just an amazing achievement as we examined that McDonald's had finally arrived in spoiling. It was quite a lame place. I loved growing up there, but there was nothing to do. The only thing there was to do was swimming and fishing. That was like, that was like it. And so we chose the latter option. We went for the fishing option. And so my dad and myself and my brother would go fishing on certain evenings and certain nights. And we enjoyed it. The problem was, you know, when I was 10, my brother was 7, and he had the attention span of a budgie. My brother did not exactly grasp that fishing involved being quiet, putting the float in, and now we wait like Englishmen. He didn't grasp that. He was bored after about 10 seconds. And so what my brother would do is he would spend a lot of time throwing in stones in a very irritating way. He would basically throw a stone in after about 10 minutes, and then he would say, oh, look, it's a big fish jumping. And you're like, you're an idiot. And, and we would just go on like this for, for a long period of time, but there's so many, so many, so many stones that fish can take. You know what I'm saying? You become aware after a while, I'm not going to catch anything because this lurker is throwing in stones into where I'm trying to fish. And so... After a while, we would start to, start to realize, you know, Dad, if he's going to throw in stones, we may as well just join him. And so instead of fishing, we'd start throwing in stones. I mean, we make entertainment pretty light in Spalding and Lincolnshire. We'd start throwing in stones into the rivers. And, and it was, it was, they were very beautiful, beautiful rivers. They were incredibly straight. They would go as far as you can see. And where I grew up, it was completely flat. There were no hills at all. And so the sky would be massive. And so you'd often see the sun setting on the horizon. The fields would start to glow and change different colors as the sun sets. And we would have this big, long river stretching in front of us. And there would be me and my dad and my brother sewing in stones. And after a while, we cottoned on. This is quite fun. So we would try and find the biggest stones you could find. And we would pick up, like, you know, peop- <laughs> clearly parts of people's walls. And we would pick them up. And we would take them. And we'd just, this is so cool. And we would stand on the bridge. And we would throw them in. And then we would just wait. And you see, what would happen is as you throw this huge stone in, it would affect the water. The water would all start rippling, and it would make this massive boom as it hits the the water, and then the water would go down and come back up. And then we would watch the ripples. And because the, the river was so straight, you'd see it going on for miles, these ripples that we had caused by the stones. Well, the reason why I talk about that is because I want to submit to you that the biblical paradigm for the functional centrality of the gospel also functions in this way. It functions with this stone and ripple effect. We were never meant to move on from the stone. When we move on, we aren't affected by the ripples. But when we stay near the stone and allow its ripples to affect us, lives are hugely changed. You see, the stone, obviously, point one, the great stone is the gospel. It is the truth that Christ died for our sins. You can have the gospel in your hand. It's a useful exercise for Sunday school. You say, son, the gospel is in your hand. Where? Christ died for my sins. There. It's yours. Hold the gospel. It's true. The gospel is the main thing. The gospel is that which is meant to be central in our lives. We're never meant to move on from the gospel. And when the gospel affects your life, it is one mother of a stone that comes into your heart, isn't it? It changes everything. Boom! 
People that were once dead now become alive in Christ. People that were once his enemies now find themselves seated at his table. People that are under the wrath of God, destined for eternal hell, now come as a child of God into eternal heaven. There is a massive transforming effect that takes place as the gospel whacks into our hearts. Boom! But it's very important if we're going to change, if we're going to change in a way the gospel wants to influence and function in our lives, then we mustn't move on from the gospel. We must stand there and allow the ripples of the waters of our heart through the gospel to be affected. See, the gospel's gracious and ongoing transforming effect really comes through the ripples. And so there's two ripples I want to talk about this morning to help you see how this paradigm functions. The first ripple is this. Ripple one gospel truths. And so the gospel has been introduced to your heart. Boom. Don't move on. Stand there. Well, for what? Because the ripples of gospel truths will start to influence you and affect you and reach your mind. See, these are not the gospel itself. These are implications of the gospel truths that hit us as ripples specifically because of the gospel stone itself. See, it can be so confusing, can it not, to try and figure out sometimes, where does the gospel connect and impact with me in practical ways? So maybe your job, maybe you hate your job, maybe your job sucks, <laughs> maybe it really does suck, and you just think, I, I don't know how the gospel affects that. What has the gospel got to do with me and my thinking and my conduct at work? How does, how does it affect that in, in any way? Maybe a sickness or a suffering, or a trial, and you think, how does the gospel influence or connect with those things? Maybe fears, maybe doubts, maybe things that you've struggled with for years, and you just think, how, how does the gospel connect to those fears and doubts? How, how does it influence them or change them in any way? Maybe you're single, and you desperately desire to get married. And up until this point, you've not got married. Marriage hasn't come about for you, and you think, Lord, what are you doing? Does the gospel influence that? Does it affect that? Maybe you're married and you'd like to have children. But up until now, that has not occurred for you. I know people that that's their story. And it can be hard to figure out how does the gospel affect that? How does the gospel in any way speak to the practical ways and the practical spheres that I actually live my life in? But the truth is, the gospel speaks to every one of those. The gospel shouts very loudly to every single one of those things that I've just taught you about. And the reason why that is, and the place that it actually does, is the gospel, having bounced into the waters of our heart, the ripples begin to connect with our mind and with our hearts. That's what gospel truths are about. I mean, think with me for a moment. How much of your life is lived up here and down here? It's a lot, isn't it? So much of our lives are are lived in in our mind and in our heart. And when you stop and think about it, you realize this is true. So much of our lives are, are lived in our fears and in our doubts and in our guilt and in our desires and our longings. So much of our lives are, are built and, and made to, to move forward through here, through our mind and through our heart. Well, the good news is this. The gospel speaks to all those things. The gospel influences and empowers and motivates all those different things. And if your feet are rooted in the gospel, then it will graciously and wonderfully wield its power in your life as the ripples of the gospel affect your mind, 
and your heart, which changes everything. Let me give you some examples, and there's no, no need to turn there because I'm going to read them out. But let me give you some examples so that you can see played out what I'm on about because it changes lives. Romans 5, verse 1. Listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the logic of the verse. We can skip over it too quickly. What is he saying? Notice the logic, the gospel, therefore since. He's talking about something that he's always spoken about. Therefore since we have been justified by faith. He's just spent six chapters singing of the, he's just spent four chapters singing of the glories of Calvary. He's explained to people how you are guilty of cosmic treason. And yet by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, your life has been radically transformed. The gospel has affected your life. Boom, you are now different. He's applying the gospel. So what does he say? Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, gospel, here's the ripple. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See the way it works? If we move on from the gospel, we, we don't get the ripple. But if we stay in the gospel, it affects everything. Knowing that we have a peace with God changes lives, doesn't it? Knowing, seriously, that I am at peace with God. I was once God's enemy. I was once opposing him. And he was once opposing me in his wrath. Not anymore. I'm now at peace with God. It brings security and safety. When we're singing songs to the Lord, we're not in fear for our lives. We're amazed, secure, and safe that we have now peace with God. And what Paul wants to do, therefore, knowing that that can change lives, is he wants to take time to connect our peace with the solidarity of the gospel. Therefore, you've been justified by faith. This is amazing. This is solid. This is huge. This is foundational. Therefore, you have peace with God. He's attaching it to something that should bring power and grace and substance and solidarity. He doesn't just want you to know you have peace with God. And you say, oh, thanks. Yeah, cheers. No, he wants you to know you have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. It's solid. It isn't going to change. It will never change. Romans 8 verse 1, he does the same. There is therefore now, okay, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now. What is he referring to? He's referring to seven chapters of the gospel. He's referring to extended periods where he's just explaining, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's all Jesus. He's died for you. He's forgiven you. He has made entrance to God by his grace alone for you. He's been hammering that nail again and again and again. Therefore, there is now, here's the ripple, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a life-changing truth that is. It is so easy to fall under condemnation. It's so easy to think that God must be disappointed with you, that you must be the black sheep of the family because all you spend your time doing is thinking about all the sins that you've committed in your life. That's condemnation. And outside of the gospel... Outside of our feet firmly rooted in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we will always be vulnerable towards condemnation. See, it will always be our temptation. And our temptation when we realize that I just feel condemned will be to do one of two things. We will either completely go down the pan and feel depressed and just think, oh, woe is me. I'm just rubbish. Or we will stand here and we'll try and perform like a seal before the Lord to try and win our affections back. Because we just feel condemned. 
But you see, when we allow the gospel to wield its influence on our lives, when we allow the solidarity of the gospel for our feet to be firmly planted in and then allow the ripples to affect our lives, you realize this isn't true. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. Because of what he has done. So when Satan tempts me to despair, which he does me, things that I've done in my life, and Satan tempts you and says, how can you be a pastor when this is what you're like? How, how can you address these people whom you love with, with, my, with God's word when you live your life the way you do? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Jesus Christ has paid the price in full. He has dealt with it. All that you have done in your life has been forgiven. Past, present, and future sin. It is gone. It is, you have been reconciled to God. Because of the gospel, there is therefore now no condemnation. It affects our lives greater when we realize it's the gospel, isn't it? It affects us more when we don't just realize, oh, you know what, mate? You really shouldn't be condemned by that. You don't need to. Oh, yeah, thank you. I really should go on. No, no, no. You don't need to be condemned by that because of the gospel. You are living in the light of a sin and suffering guilt for a sin that Jesus Christ paid for in full on the cross. He was condemned for you. He became guilty for you. So you stand there, my friend, guiltless. You stand there free of your sin, clothed in the righteousness of God. He is not disappointed with you. He is not condemning you. He's singing over you. It is scandalous grace. But it only empowers us and affects us when we realize it is connected with the gospel. One more, Romans 8, verse 32. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Isn't that neat? He who didn't spare his own son, that's the gospel. God in his grace gave his only begotten son for you. If he did that for you, then what Paul is saying, if he did that for you, here's the ripple, how will he not also then graciously give you all things? See the promise coming out of the gospel? If he loved you enough to send his son to die in your place, do you honestly think he's going to desert you now? Do you honestly think he's not going to provide for you, and care for you, and help you, and hold you? If he gave his son for you, he will definitely do that for you. It is the ripple of the gospel. Gospel truths impacting our hearts and impacting our minds. So fears, doubts, guilts, desires, longings, the gospel speaks to all those things. It impacts all those different things. And if our feet are firmly rooted in the gospel, if our feet are determined not to move on from the gospel, if we allow the ripples of gospel truths to affect our lives, then it will change our lives because it will affect our thinking will affect our heart. There's one other ripple that we should also be looking out for. Number two is this. Ripple two is gospel conduct. See, the second ripple of the gospel is all about behavioral implications. Gospel conduct that is shaped and exhorted and empowered by gospel truths. And so the gospel comes into our life. Boom, stand there. Allow its ripples to fall on you. Gospel truths affecting you. Don't move on. Because these truths have implications for the way we live our lives. They empower us and they affect us. And they inform us as to how we're called by God to, meet, to uh, live our lives. And there's a wonderful scene in James 1, which is one of my favorites. It's that wonderful word picture 
of the man who looks himself in the mirror. You know the one? Oh, it's classic, isn't it? Absolute classic. I just love the way James talks us through the different, the different process. Here's the story. You've really got a guy who appears to have a little bit of a bedhead going on. You know what I'm saying? Everybody knows the bedhead. The one that you, you know, sport for your wife or your husband as soon as you awake in the morning. I have a lovely bedhead. So ask Emma, I'm sure she'll let you know that it is particularly horrible. And so I wake up in the morning and my face, it's like, has somebody hit you with a spade? Is something happened to you overnight, which I was completely unaware of? And so I arrive at the bathroom mirror and it's not pretty. Usually there is hair sticking up at angles that you think, I'm surprised. I have no idea how that happened throughout the night. You must have, I don't know what was going on. You spot a face that is barely recognizable as you see marks on it and lines in it. And there is usually at least one bogey on your cheek somewhere. And then you realize, that looks awfully like my three-year-old daughter's bogey. Uh, and, you, and usually, you're correct. She comes in for the cuddle in, and she managed to dribble her nose on your cheek. And so when you arrive at the mirror, it is a horrific scene. It is horrible in so many different ways. And what James is basically saying, listen, that's what this guy's like in James 1. He arrives at the mirror, and he sees himself, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I need some change. There are some issues with my face that need to be resolved. But he doesn't make any changes. He sees where he needs to change. He sees there's problems. But he just puts his clothes on and goes to work. And what James is saying is, are you crazy? He's helping us see that if we listen to God's word through preaching or through reading of our own, we will see ourselves in the mirror. God will influence. He will help us see what is going on in our hearts, what is going on in our lives and in our minds. It is like a man looking in the mirror, but you're not blessed in the looking. You're blessed in the doing. You're blessed in the application. I'm not blessed when I look at my face in the mirror in the morning and make no changes, and neither is anybody else. I'm blessed when I make some changes and then go and live my life accordingly. We must We must be a local church who is applying Scripture. We must. Just to listen and just to hear and just to say that was a wonderful sermon, it can often be deceived. We're not blessed in our hearing. We're blessed when we take it and say, that impacts my life. I need to go away and make some changes. We allow the ripples of gospel conduct to fall on our lives. But I'm eager that we not be just a local church who applies Scripture I want us to be a local church that applies Scripture in light of the gospel, that lets the gospel function, that lets the gospel influence our conduct, influence our behavior, model our behavior, and empower our behavior. Why? Because that is the way the gospel was meant to function. This isn't a sovereign grace distinctive. It's a Bible distinctive. The Bible is laced all the way through with gospel and application, gospel and application, gospel and application. Grace-motivated change comes as we center ourselves on the gospel. Why? Well, because as I said last week, we, we all have a tendency towards legalism, don't we? It happens in my life. We all have a tendency to forget when we are not gathering around the gospel. We have a tendency to forget that my behavior isn't earning God's grace. It isn't earning my justification. It isn't earning my acceptance. No, Jesus Christ has earned it all for me. Your behavior and my behavior never earns, it just exhibits. It never merits, it just marks. 
Your behavior just reveals that you're a Christian, but it never earns your salvation. Your salvation has been fully earned by Jesus Christ alone in your place. But now, as Christians, we're called to therefore go. Paul tells us time and time again, therefore live a life worthy of the call. Live a life worthy of the gospel. But don't move on from it. Hang on, we're you off. Come here. Allow the ripples to change your life. The ripples of the gospel change your thinking, but they change your conduct as well. And so you see that time again. Ephesians 4, for example, Paul says this. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, listen, as God in Christ forgave you. Don't brush over that too quick. Don't you see his logic? Gospel conduct, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. That's the, what he wants to, us, us to apply. He wants us to see, man, I need to do that. I need to be tender-hearted and forgiving for others. But this is where he brings the gospel to bear on it, to motivate us, to model for us, to empower us. Here's what it is. As God in Christ forgave you. It's the gospel. What he's basically saying is be more aware of how much you have been forgiven by God. Stand near to the cross every day and be amazed that you have been forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future. He has done it all for you. And then turn to the individual and decide whether you're going to forgive them or not. You must forgive them. Be tender-hearted to them, compassionate to them. Why? Because the gospel has influenced you. To allow it to function. Just the same in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. You think, yeah, I, I want to love my wife. And it can sound like just a, a slightly detached command. You know, Patrick, love your wife. Okay, good. I, I will do. That's not what Paul does, though, is it? He wants to wield the gospel into it. So he says, husbands, love your wives, this is how, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He said, because of the gospel, because you have one greater than you who has died in your place, who has died for the bride of Christ, model him and learn from him and exemplify him in your marriage by doing the same with your wife. Husbands, that's how you're meant to love your wife. She should look and see in you Christ's example of servant leadership and care. It's an incredible challenge, isn't it? And I often fall so short. But that's the model, and that is the example. And so listen, when the gospel functions in our hearts and in our minds, informing our thinking and in our conduct, I, I submit to you, it really does, it changes lives. It changes our relationships changes our marriages, our parenting, our lifestyle. It changes our thinking. It informs our fears and our desires and our longings. It changes our conduct as we realize the gospel speaks to my behavior. It speaks to what I'm about. We never earn salvation. We never merit salvation. But it speaks to it because it marks who I am. It speaks to it because it exhibits who I am. It reveals to the world that I am Ecclesia. I am set apart. I am Jesus Christ's. So even when we fail, we pick ourselves up and we say, you know what, my friend, would you forgive me for that? I didn't reflect Jesus Christ. And in, even in asking forgiveness, we're modeling something quite different in the world. There are thousands of people passing on that road, even now as we are in here, worshiping and living our lives and enjoying spending time around the cross. Next week, we'll look at it fully. Because the gospel is meant for unbelievers as well. But, but believe me, the way you apply it influences that. If unbelievers look at your lives and they think, to be honest, you're just exactly the same as me, then we've got a problem. The way we change is when we allow the gospel to ripple into our lives, not only in thought, 
but in practice, in the way we live for the glory of God. Paul knows that. He knows. He knows the vital truth of the gospel. He knows that the gospel does indeed change lives. He knows that if you can keep the gospel the main thing, if you can ensure as a local church that you never move on from the gospel, he knows that you will be a church that enjoys grace and doesn't succumb to legalism. He knows that if you can brandish the gospel and whack it into your heart and then not move on from it, it will change your life. It will change every aspect of your life. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, don't move on. Treasure it. Guard it. I am about to die, Timothy. So here's what I want you to know. Timothy, guard the good deposit. Follow the words that I've set for you in all of your life. Never move on from the gospel. I don't want us to move on from the gospel. I don't want to move on from the gospel myself. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said to his flock, you know what, I'm concerned that you will get bored with my preaching. And I'm concerned because all you're going to hear is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, every single week. I'm going to get the hammer out, and I'm going to hit the nail of saved by grace alone every single week. Well, folks, I ain't no Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but I'm going to use his example. And I am, as long as I live, and as long as I have the privilege of being your pastor, I'm going to get the hammer out, and I'm going to hit the same nail. Every week, I'm going to hit the same nail every day of my life because the gospel changes lives. It changes everything. It changed my life. And it will change yours too as you allow its ripples to fall on you. So application, two things, two suggestions as we close. As we want to apply. Here's two thoughts for you on how we can apply this word. Number one, do all you can to cultivate a deep personal appreciation for the gospel and gospel truths. Do all you can to cultivate a deep and personal appreciation for the gospel and gospel truths. Now read God's word. Spend time in the gospel. Spend time. And as you read it, pay particular attention to certain points that it's trying to make. Pay attention to words and vocabulary and imagery of slavery and freedom. Pay attention and note how many times you read guilt and pardon. Pay attention when you read enemy and child and allow those things to affect your life. Read books as well. One book that I would love you to read, and I believe it's on the bookshelf, is Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. That transformed my life. I always never lived confidently in God's love towards me. I always sought to earn it. And so Transforming Grace shows you how to live confidently in the unfailing of God love of God towards you. Change his lives. Read these things. Soak in them. Allow them to work into your life. Study the gospel. Sing the gospel. Buy good CDs. You know the power of music? I'm going to do a message on it in a few months, but the, the power of music is that it, it's built into our life as theme tunes of our lives. You know, I, I, one of the songs that I used to grow up on is, I want to be a history maker. You know that one, Michael W. Smith? I want to be history maker. And you think, yes. That's what I want to be, a history maker. But then your son gets sick. And he has to go in for a heart operation. I I don't care less about being a history maker. I care less that the Lord is with me. He's never going to leave me nor forsake me. I want to be singing the truths about how God in his grace died so that I may have life. I want to be singing and reminding myself that the God of the gospel is the one who is caring for me and my son in this moment. He knows what it's like to care for a son. 
Josh had that heart operation and did well. But it was tough. I don't want to be a history maker. I want truth to affect my life. Sing. Find ways of singing the gospel and gospel truth. Pray. Reminding yourselves daily of just what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's number one. Cultivate a deep and personal appreciation for the gospel. And then number two, pick one area of your life that is in need of change and begin to apply the gospel to it. Pick one area of your life that is in need of change and begin to apply the gospel to it. Now, don't take an age to come up with the one thing, all right? There can be a temptation sometimes to think, I see so much in my life, I'm going to concentrate on 10 things at once. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. Pick, pick one thing, because the reality is when you allow the gospel to influence one thing, it affects so much of life anyway. And if you're thinking, oh, I've got so many things, well, think of whatever came into your mind straight away when I said one thing, that's probably your one thing, all right? So stick with that and start to allow the gospel to speak to it. Ask yourself these questions. What has the gospel made possible in this situation? What new perspective does the gospel bring to this situation? What resources are available to me today because of the gospel? Start to consider, how does the gospel connect with this? How does the gospel connect with this area of my life? Maybe it's suffering. Maybe you are struggling with suffering, wondering where God is. Well, here's the questions. What has the gospel made possible to you in this situation? What new perspectives does the gospel bring to this situation? What resources are available to you today because of the gospel? And in what way does the gospel then inform your conduct? Think about it. Allow the gospel to soak into it and then allow grace-motivated and gospel-centered change to take place, to commence. So pick one area and apply the gospel to it. And then truly would gospel-centered and grace-motivated change be our story. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is powerful and that your gospel changes lives. Lord, I'm sorry for times in my life when I've, well, I've just run from the gospel. I've moved on as if the gospel is for beginners. Lord, would you help us never to move on from the gospel? Allow its truths to affect and change our thinking and our motives and our desires and our conduct and our change. Lord, help us by your grace to to live for you in light of the gospel. Lord, as we close then, we turn all attention to you. Lord, our hope for change is not in how hard we will try. Our hope for change is grace. And so, Lord, would you give us grace? Through the Holy Spirit, would you give us grace to change? And would you give us grace to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us? Lord, the gospel is all about you. And so would you fill our gaze, not only in this moment, but on Monday morning, a Tuesday lunch, a Wednesday evening, would Christ and him crucified dazzle our view for your glory, Lord. Amen.